Well, I've approached the minority leader in regard to a current problem that we have in Florida. We hope we never come to this point, but I'm examining all of my legal remedies in regard to the problem of forced busing. And if I'm denied in the courts, uh, it's my feeling that in one instance, uh, a judge has uh, uh, violated the intent of Congress. That is Claude Kirk law. Jr., and the 36th governor of Florida. Courts, He's in the middle of his reelection campaign to serve his second term. It's 1970. He's standing with Gerald Ford, the future president of the United States. Right now, however, he's the House Minority Leader for the Republican Party in Congress. They're at the forefront of a debate about a very serious topic, busing. Busing was used as a method for desegregation nationwide. In Florida, desegregation was beginning to happen across the board, though quite slowly. Nationally, the Supreme Court had ruled busing to school would be based on school district, Children of different races would be traveling to school together now. Florida's Board of Education defied this and declared that the state would not go through with the methods. The other states in the country began making the necessary changes for busing, but Florida was now standing alone. Therefore, Governor Claude Kirk Jr. was standing alone. That didn't scare this old governor. He was a boorish man, often compared to a Roman emperor. He ran for governor on the platform of business. He would run the government like a CEO would. This was never more evident than in his aggressive campaign against busing. He battled counties and school boards. It became a statewide joke. Kirk was ignoring issues everywhere and spending all of his time fighting over school buses. Perhaps in a different time, this would have made him look bold to his constituents. Instead, Kirk looked distracted and infantile. In 1970, Governor Claude Kirk was the governor no longer. He lost his re-election campaign. His story in Florida politics reached its end. Its beginning, however, goes back much, much further. Here is a bulletin from CBS News. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. The first reports say that President Kennedy has been seriously wounded by this shooting. President John F. Kennedy is assassinated in Dallas on November 22, 1963. Walter Cronkite reports the story on CBS. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. It is believed that at nearly exactly the same moment aboard Air Force One, Lyndon Baines Johnson is taking the oath of office to become the President of the United States. But there is cause for hope and for faith in our democracy in what is happening here tonight. For the cries of pain and the hymns and protests of oppressed people have summoned into convocation all the majesty of this great government. That's President Johnson 16 months later. It's March 15, 1965. He's been the president for a year and a half now. He's just officially won his first election as president. His first term began on that plane in the shadow of a national tragedy. His second began with excitement. It's the very beginning of his term now. His inauguration was two months ago. It's looking like Johnson will do what Kennedy was unable to, protect the rights of black voters throughout the country. 
The conversation about a Voting Rights Act had been moving through the country for years now, led by thousands of black activists nationwide. The conflicts were now reaching a boiling point. Malcolm X had been assassinated less than a month ago, and now Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was leading a series of marches in Selma, Alabama. On the first day of the protests on March 7th, the peaceful protesters were met with violence from Alabama state troopers. Two days later, James Reeb, a white pastor who had publicly thrown his support behind Dr. King, was murdered by segregationists in Selma. Back in Washington, D.C., activists were staging a sit-in in the White House. President Johnson was furious at their stubborn refusal to leave. They wanted a bill, and he didn't have one yet. And then, a few days later, he did. He called a joint session of Congress and spoke. He talked about the activists and the march and the leaders. He made it clear, failing to pass this bill would be an outright affront to freedom in this country. Our lives have been marked with debate about great issues, issues of war and peace, issues of prosperity and depression. But rarely in any time does an issue lay bare the secret heart of America itself. Rarely are we met with a challenge not to our growth, our abundance, or our welfare, or our security, but rather to the values and the purposes and the meaning of our beloved nation. Back in Alabama, Dr. King and the other Southern activists had successfully made their way to Montgomery after two and a half weeks. They gather now at the state capitol. There were 25,000 people in attendance. On the steps, Dr. King spoke. I come to say to you this afternoon, however difficult the moment, yes, sir. however frustrating the hour, it will not be long because truth crushed earth will rise again. Yes, sir. How long? Not long. Yes, sir. Because no lie can live forever. Yes, sir. How long? Not long. How long? Yes, because you shall reap. Five months later, the bill was officially signed by President Johnson. Dr. King was in attendance at the signing. Many of the measures that had kept black voters away from the polls were now illegal. Across the American South, black voters were increasing in huge numbers. The Democrats had just secured voting security for a large percentage of the population. No one could be quite sure, but it was looking like the midterms in 1966 could be a huge win for the Democratic Party nationwide. Florida was one such state. We had been a predominantly Democratic state for 90 years. A Republican had not been elected to the office of governor since the years after the Civil War. Democrats and Republicans had been facing a shift in dynamic now. Democrats used to be about small government, but were shifting to the other side of that particular political spectrum. Now, those who sided with Republicans were more conservative in their views, and small government sat more in line with their views. The climate of the country's politics were changing with each passing month. Back in 1964, Florida decided to shift their gubernatorial elections. Up to this point, the race for governor was held in the same year as presidential elections. The man who was serving as Florida's governor would have to run again just two years later, in 1966. In that year, the first major election after the passing of the Voting Rights Act, a Republican was elected to the Florida governorship for the first time in the 20th century.
I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. Tomorrow is election day for many cities and counties around the state. In their honor, I'd like to tell you about the gubernatorial election of 1966 and how desegregation changed politics. There's that old saying that there are three sides to every story, your side, my side, and the truth. In the case of the election of 1966, those three sides are very different. This time, they are the winner, the loser, and the governor. Robert King High is 40 years old, was born in Flat Creek, Tennessee. He attended the University of Miami, graduated from Stetson Law School, was elected mayor of Miami in 1957, has served as mayor for four consecutive uh, terms. He's a practicing attorney. This is his first bid for statewide political office. Robert King High was a lawyer and an army veteran. He was not a born and raised Floridian, but found a home here after World War II. He studied law at Stetson University and then settled in Miami with his own law practice. He learned Spanish, became deeply invested in Latin American geopolitics, and assimilated easily with the Hispanic community in town. He became an outspoken and aggressive opponent to corruption. He worked in Miami for eight years, an active member of the community. Then, in 1955, the mayor of Miami retired. That man, Abraham Aronovitz, put his full support behind High in the election of 1957. He was about to take a big leap into politics. Miami was a massive, growing city, bursting with potential and national attention. But criminals were taking the city by storm and dirty money was flowing into politics. High refused to be part of that cycle and refused to raise huge amounts of cash for his campaign. His slogan for mayor was, take the high road. Robert King High, was an underdog. He made enemies with big money and made friends with minorities in town. In a runoff election for mayor, Robert King High beat the odds and was elected to the office of mayor of Miami. His tenure in Miami was about as high profile as it gets. He visited Latin America often, even visited Cuba before the revolution. When the blockade split the U.S. from our southern island neighbor, Mayor High was on the front lines of accommodating for the hundreds of thousands of Cuban refugees fleeing to Miami's shores. He joined the fight for civil rights and made enemies throughout the state by becoming a vocal opponent of segregation. He befriended then-President John F. Kennedy, a frequent visitor to Miami. When Kennedy was running for president, High was one of the first to vocally back him. By the mid-60s, Mayor Robert King High was a progressive, the ideal picture of the new Democratic Party as the 60s raged forward. When the 1964 election rolled around, Robert decided to escalate his career. He ran for governor. Here he is at the debate for Democratic candidate for governor. He's just been asked about the Civil Rights Act. If it's passed, will he consider it the law of the land for Florida? Uh, if the Congress of the United States passes a civil rights bill, and if the President of the United States signs it into law, I will uphold the law, uh, and I will extend to it whatever support a governor must extend to a federal law. Because to do otherwise would mean defiance of federal law, which could, of course, bring federal marshals into this state, and which would be disastrous if we did. It's a tepid response, especially at this time. He's fighting this fight in the city, but now, on television, face-to-face -face with his opponent, Robert King High has chosen his words carefully, maybe too carefully. 
The next question is about his relationship with black voters in Florida. That community has shown support for him, and does he consider himself to be a favorite? His response is, again, extremely tepid. I don't uh, believe that that is a, uh, a fair statement. I do think that many people in this state believe that I am a fair man. I have stated that I believe that fair treatment, I believe in fair treatment for all people. And if by your statement you can say that I have handled well a most sensitive problem, and that is race relations, I would then accept it as such. The matter of getting along with each other is a national trouble. He's nervous. You can see it in his face. He has small eyes that flit around as he speaks, and he rocks back and forth throughout his words. His hair is pushed back far, too tight, and he looks like he's about to snap in half. At a time where the South was facing a racial identity crisis, Florida voters believed that they needed a governor that could be strong in the face of radical change. The tide was turning, and uncertainty could not be tolerated. High served well in Miami, a stage much smaller and much more suited to his relatively radical beliefs. But here, at the state level, his moderate response does not bode well. He loses the 1964 Democratic primary, and he returns to Miami in defeat. The Democratic candidate goes on to win the general election in November, making him the 35th governor of Florida, the last non-Republican governor in a line stretching back 90 years. Hayden Burns is 52 years old, was born in Chicago, grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, moved to Jacksonville at the age of 10, attended Duval Public Schools, attended Babson College in Massachusetts. He has served as mayor of Jacksonville for 15 years. In 1961, he was president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors. Mr. Burns is a business consultant by profession. He ran third among the Democratic governor's candidates in the election four years ago. In the May 5th primary, Mr. Burns was the top vote-getter. That man is William Hayden Burns, and he still holds the record for longest consecutive time spent as mayor of Jacksonville. He was elected in 1949, then re-elected four more times. He served in the Navy during World War II and worked in public relations until he picked up and fought his way to the office of mayor at the age of 37. It would not be another eight years until Robert King High was elected mayor of Miami. By the time they faced off for governor, Burns had age and experience over his opponent by a country mile. But in their cities, they both left similar impacts. During his tenure, Burns' main goal as governor was to sell Jacksonville as a southern city of the future. He even made a slideshow about the city called the Jacksonville Story. This show was brought around the world to international expos, sharing the vital future of his city. He redeveloped bridges, built a city hall and a courthouse, and brought growth to civic life in nearly all capacities. His term as governor is still known as Jacksonville's Decade of Progress. And then came Axe Handle Saturday, August 27, 1960. Sit-ins were taking place in Jacksonville to protest segregated lunch counters across the South. Jacksonville's branch of the NAACP organized the event. The Ku Klux Klan was active in town and caught wind of the sit-in that Saturday morning. The Klan caught up with black protesters at a lunch counter in downtown Jacksonville and began to violently assault the protesters, beating them with baseball bats and axe handles. What was at first just a few individuals became hundreds as white assailants pursued any black citizen in sight and beat them. Many of the black citizens fled to churches until the chaos settled. After this horrific event, 
Mayor Hayden Burns took a bizarre stance. The citizens of Jacksonville were not to blame. He said that visitors to the city were actually the cause. This was disputed by all investigators. As segregation-focused protests became more and more prominent, Burns took an apathetic line and believed that protesters were causing civil unrest. Then, in 1964, when he was elected governor, Hayden Burns stepped down from his position in Jacksonville. He had a much bigger job on his hands. Now, it's 1966. Hayden Burns has served for barely a year when he must begin campaigning yet again. For him, it must have felt like old hat. The people of Florida just voted him into office two years ago. All he had to do was show up, say the same things, and be the man they already voted for. Hayden Burns has an extremely intimidating physical demeanor. He has small, vibrant eyebrows that sit above thin, grave eyes. He always looks firm and irritated, but steady and certain. He had a deep voice and a slight southern accent. I have been mayor of Jacksonville for 15 years, serving in a capacity as both chief executive and administrator. He was a professional campaigner now. The man had already won six elections in his life, and he was barely 54. What Burns didn't see coming was that, in the short time between these two elections, the world changed. Congress and the president passed the Voting Rights Act. Now Hayden Burns, the conservative Southern Democrat, was facing a new batch of voters, voters that he had been openly apathetic towards throughout his entire mayoral career. To make it worse, his opponent for Democratic primary was just as familiar as the primary itself. Robert Hyde, the mayor of Miami, returned to the battleground. He had a renewed sense of excitement, a new wave of voters behind his back, and the same honest, optimistic energy. People were looking differently at these men for a lot of reasons. Byrne hadn't done much as governor. He held a press conference with Walt Disney announcing the Magic Kingdom, but other than that, he'd been relatively stale. The 60s were a different time now, and Jacksonville's decade of progress only carried him so far. His popularity with minority voters was bound to be flimsy at best, and Robert King High had loads of goodwill at his back. Hayden Burns, the veteran politician, the face of Southern Democrats in Florida, had the odds stacked against him. Backed into a corner and facing uncertain futures, Hayden Burns ran a vicious campaign against Robert King High. Burns hit with a litany of accusations. He claimed that High was accepting funding from Robert Kennedy, popular brother of the late president. Burns claimed that High was some sort of racial radical, siding with Dr. King over the best interests of Florida citizens. Burns claimed President Johnson as a supporter, but Johnson took no side in the race. Burns' entire campaign, however, was based on drawing the line and dividing the sides. He was not compelled to go to battle against the Republicans. Right now, Hayden Burns, the Democrat, had one enemy, the new Democratic Party. Now, inter-party fighting is not uncommon. The Democrats are still fighting that issue right now. Republicans fought that battle a decade ago. It's common for political alignments to redefine themselves and reshape their position and stance. But in the mid-60s, the Democrats felt like a divided nation. Conservative Democrats and liberal Democrats were enemies, especially in the South. Race relations were splitting them in two irreparably. Burns believed that this would be a power to his advantage. If he could show Florida's Democrats what a loose liberal lunatic Robert King High was, they'd return to Governor Burns and his tenure in the office would endure. 
Then, Hayden Burns lost the Democratic primary. The first primary was, of course, too close to call. In a runoff, however, High won a decisive victory. High got a huge portion of the vote in Burns' own Jacksonville. The rest of the Democrats gathered behind Robert King High. He was the golden child, the future of the party, and he was going to sustain the Democrats' reign over the state. High's enthusiasm ran deep, and he was perfectly positioned to take the job and carry Florida to his version of a brighter future. Except, Governor Hayden Burns did not retreat so easily. His line in the sand did not fade. Instead of gathering with the rest of his party, Burns did the unthinkable. He gave much of his campaign staff to the Republican candidate. The Republican candidate was, of course, Claude Kirk Jr. Remember him? My fellow Floridians, there are moments which live forever in the memory of man. This to me is just such a moment. I am engulfed by gratitude to you, the citizens of Florida, for the great confidence expressed in your selection of me as your governor. Kirk wasn't always a Republican himself. When the party shift began in 1960, Kirk switched from Democrat to Republican and backed Richard Nixon's first bid for the presidency. In the next few years, he became a prominent member of his party in Florida, and when 1966 rolled around, the stars aligned. Burns split the Democratic vote clean in half, and the Republicans seized the opportunity. Though Republicans were not without their tribulations, Kirk had made enemies with another prominent figure in his party, U.S. Representative William Kramer. When he was elected to the House in 1955, Kramer was the first Republican in such a position from Florida since Reconstruction. Kramer was popular and respected, a pioneer in the Republican Party's rise in state during this fraught era. Kirk, however, disliked Kramer a lot. Kramer was trying to build a foundation for the Republican Party, but Kirk was seeking out the votes of the disillusioned Burns Democrats. Kirk would later claim that Kramer wanted to be the candidate himself, but Kramer disputed this. When Kirk became governor, his enemies did not back down. He wanted to be the leader of the Republican Party, but his old enemy Kramer would not allow that. Kramer believed, 20 years later, that he was the only thing that stood in Governor Kirk's way. What stood in both of their ways, however, was the election of 1970. Claude Kirk was seeking re-election in 1970. Kramer ran for Senate in 1970. They both opposed busing. They were enemies still and seemed to be supporting each other's opponents, but they seemed to be moving toward a united front. These two men, almost single-handedly, had brought the Republican Party to the forefront of the conversation in the state. They were fighting their fight, but their egos couldn't get out of the way. They hated each other, and they did not keep it quiet. At that exact same time, the Democrats were forming a new party. Robert King High died the year after he lost the gubernatorial election. A heart attack took him at the age of 43. Hayden Burns returned to private business. But with a lambasting Republican governor in office and Richard Nixon recently elected president, the Democratic Party of Florida made nice. They too were running for senator and governor. Their candidates were Lawton Childs and Reuben Askew, respectively. They had a solid front, they believed in the same thing, and most importantly, they liked each other. 
1970, they handily defeated their Republican opponents. Senator Lawton Childs served in his position as senator for 18 years. The year after he left his job, he became the governor from 1991 to 1998 until he passed in office from a heart attack. Governor Reuben Askew served two terms as governor from 1971 to 1979. When he left office, he briefly worked for the Carter administration. During his tenure as governor, he worked toward desegregation in the state. One of the methods he used was busing. He is still considered to be one of the greatest governors in Florida history, and Harvard ranked him among one of the top 10 governors in the country during the 20th century. The elections of 1964 and 1966 were elections held in two different worlds. In the span of just two years, not only did the voting demographic change, but the sensibilities of Floridians changed, too. Tensions were mounting, and when the opportunity was just right, Claude Kirk struck. Hayden Burns' refusal to back down certainly led to this result, but Claude Kirk's stubborn focus on busing opposition led to his defeat. Without Governor Askew, Florida may never have wound up on the right side of history. But when those two men, Hayden and Robert, were on that stage in that debate, quibbling over word choice and moderate stances, they could not know what they were launching. Without them, maybe we never would have wound up the way we are. On that debate stage, they were, as we all are, living in the moment, trying to do their own version of the right thing. They did not know the consequences of each word that they chose. What happened next was unknown. I'll leave you with Governor Askew. Here he is reflecting on his career at the exact middle point of it. He's sitting in a tall chair and he can barely keep his smile in. There is an optimism in his eyes. It's 1974. So I think they're going to be really exciting years, and I, I frankly am excited about the prospect of being able to be governor for another four years, possibly in a little different way, with a little more confidence, you know, of having four years behind me. But now with a little confidence, I mean, I think that I can have a greater input, and it's four, four years that, uh, that my family and I are very much looking forward to. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. This is episode 9 of our 12-episode second season. Next week, did you know we have a state play? We do, and it's pretty great. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review below. I read every single one, and I'm always looking to hear what you have to say about this show. Most importantly, your reviews help the show grow and help it find new audiences. This has been an outstanding second season, and I'm so excited for the third. If you want the third to be even bigger and even better, one of the best ways you can do that is by leaving a review below. You can also reach me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. All of the links to those in the description below. And while you're there, why not share this episode or any of the other fantastic episodes from this past season? This show can spread with your help. You can also send me an email at wfmpod at gmail.com, especially if you have an idea for a future episode. I am always looking for more. All of the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find the titles in the description below, along with a link to more of their fantastic music. 
I'll be back with another story next Monday. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself, be good to others, and please drink more water. <laughs>